Um, okay, take your Bibles. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and then you should have handouts on your table. You can use those if that's helpful. But let's go ahead and pray, and then we are going to study God's Word together. God, you're good and kind, and we're thankful for the blessing of your word, and we're thankful to be able to come together, to study it together, and hopefully to understand it. We pray that you would bless us in that, that the Spirit would work in our minds and hearts, that we would be able to see your truth, and that we would see ways in our lives that we need to apply that, how we can more and more reflect the image of your great Son. And so we pray that you would bless our time this morning together. We pray all this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. There are some things in life money can't buy, but for everything else, there's MasterCard. You guys remember that? Remember, remember those commercials that came on? There was an advertising campaign, late 90s, early 2000s by MasterCard, and, and this was really when credit cards started to be really popular and be able to really be used at pretty much any vendor. And so they had an advertising campaign, and each of the commercials was a scene from life, and, and it would highlight a couple of things in that experience that you would have to pay for. Oh, this is getting a new bag or a new outfit or something, and it would have a price with it. But then at the end, it would always talk about how there's something about the experience that is what? You remember the, the word they used? Priceless, right? There's something about it that was priceless, but for everything else, there was MasterCard. Well, I couldn't help but think of that commercial when I was studying this passage because basically what Paul is saying in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians is that Christian liberty is important. It's very important. This is something that's valuable and you should think well about it and you should use it well. But when it comes down to it, there is one thing that is worth more than our Christian liberty always. There is one thing better. There is one thing that's priceless and it's what? It's the gospel, right? It's the gospel. So for our theme this morning, we're going to say it this way, and then we're going to work through chapter 9 together. The gospel is always worth sacrificing the use of our Christian liberty. The gospel is always worth sacrificing the use of our Christian liberty. Now, let's remember the context. We're in 1 Corinthians, right? This is a letter Paul has written to a church that, that at best is immature, right? They have several severe problems that they're dealing with. Paul has dealt with some of those and will continue to deal with those. When we got to chapter 8, last time we met a couple weeks ago, Jay taught us through chapter 8, and we really started talking about this idea of Christian liberty, the idea that, that we have freedom in Christ, but the point of chapter 8 was that we can't use our freedom in Christ in such a way that's harmful to others, that's harmful to our Christian brothers. Actually, what's interesting is as you start looking back, and, and you know we're not wrong to say that chapter 8 is the beginning of this Christian liberty section. Uh, even in seminary, you memorize chapters 8 through 10 is Christian liberty, okay? But what's interesting is some of this language about Christian liberty goes all the way back to the middle of chapter 6 when uh, Steve taught us on the, the sexual sin in the church, and they were saying all things are lawful for us. And Paul says, yes, but not all things are profitable. Just because you could do something doesn't mean that it's right or good or wise for you to do that. And they were misused using that principle. And then chapter seven, you remember that whole chapter on marriage and singleness and divorce and all that? In one sense, that's an illustration of Christian liberty. You can get married, you can stay single. It's up to you as long as you are seeking to glorify God in whichever one you are doing. You're trying to use that for the good of others and for God's honor. And then we came to chapter eight, which Jay walked us through a couple weeks ago. You can't use your Christian liberty to the detriment of other believers, right? And he finished chapter 8, look at chapter 8, verse 13. 
He's talking about this meat sacrifice to idols, right? Some people feel like they can eat that with a good conscience. Some people feel like that hurts their conscience to go uh, and do that. And so what do we do? Verse 13, Paul says, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brothers to stumble. And you, right there, you can hear the record scratch, right? Wait, wait, whoa. Let's talk about this. You just said you would change something about the entire rest of your life, something that you would prefer to do. You will give that up for the sake that it might keep someone else from sinning when that wasn't your fault in the, be- in, in the beginning. And Paul says, yeah. And so he need, feels the need to explain himself. Maybe you need another example so that we can understand how we're supposed to think about our Christian liberty. And that's where we come to in chapter 9. And in chapter 9, really the issue, the, the example that Paul is going to use is whether Christian ministers should get paid to preach the gospel and to minister in churches. That's kind of the example he's going to use. So the first half of the chapter, we're going to talk about all the arguments for why that's true. And then the second half, he's going to talk about why he is perfectly willing to give up that Christian liberty, that right, for the sake of the gospel. Okay? So, if you have your Bible, let's read chapter 9 together, and then we're going to kind of work through, work through the outline of it. Okay? Chapter 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. <clears throat> Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or doesn't the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher ought to thresh in hope of sharing the crops." If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also, the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But I've used none of these things. And I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more." 
To the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Now, in chapter 9, we're going to look at this theme. The gospel is always worth sacrificing the use of our Christian liberty. The first half of the chapter Paul is going to use the example of paying Christian ministers as an example of Christian liberty. And so our first section here, verses 1 to 14, he's going to argue that Christian ministers are worth compensating for their work. Christian ministers are worth compensating for their work. You saw that in verse 14. He says, the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Okay? Paul's going to argue for that, and he's going to start in verses 1 and 2 by reminding them of his apostolic authority. Okay? Now, he's going to get into several arguments for why he believes this is true, that Christian ministers are worth compensating, but first he's going to start off with a reminder that he's an apostle. Okay? Remember chapter 8 ended with that, that outlandish statement that he would give up meat forever if it meant his brother might not stumble. And then he says, oh, okay, you might be confused, so let me reiterate Am I not free? Yeah, I'm a Christian. I have freedom in Christ. I I have that liberty. Now, what does that idea of being free mean? Well, sometimes the word is used to just talk about being physically free, the opposite of being a slave. There are slaves and freemen, okay? But we know, even just from the context here, that Paul's not talking about that. He's talking about this spiritual freedom, right? Kind of like in back in chapter 7, when it said that the widow was free to marry again as long as she married a believer, right? She had that liberty to do that. In chapter 8, when Jay taught, it's that verse, uh, verse 9, take care that this liberty of yours, this freedom you have to choose whether to eat meat or not to eat meat, don't let that become a stumbling block to the weak. See, this freedom that we have in Christ, this Christian liberty that we're talking about, technically, precisely, it's the freedom we have from the Old Testament ceremonial laws. We are not bound by the Old Covenant anymore. Rather, we are in Christ. We are under the New Covenant. We, we don't have to keep those little precise sacrifices and the things there, but rather we get to live a life that is honoring to Christ and all that he has taught us in the Scripture, Right? This freedom, you know, uh, we're tempted sometimes to think, oh, I'm free in Christ. I can do whatever I want. Well, that's not freedom at all. That's, that's freedom to sin. It's not freedom in Christ. We don't have freedom to sin. In fact, we have freedom not to sin. That's the freedom we have in Christ. You're not a slave of sin anymore. Now you're a slave of Jesus. 
We are free to, to not keep the Old Testament laws. We have some flexibility there, but rather we can do everything in our lives according to how God has called us to live in Christ. And so now we have this freedom that we can choose a variety of things because the scripture isn't clear that you have to wear a blue shirt on Tuesdays or a red shirt on Wednesdays. We get to choose those things in the wisdom that God has given us to do them in a way that glorifies Christ. That's the idea. And so if there's things in the scripture that are very clear this is what you should do. Thus saith the Lord. You have to do that. There's things in the scripture that are very clear. You may not do this. Thus saith the Lord. You can't do that. But what about all the stuff in the middle? We use the principles of the scripture to make the wisest decisions we can, and we call those things the issues of conscience or the Christian liberty. Okay? So we're going to talk more about that even today and the next week as well. <clears throat> but apparently... Even in these questions that Paul was getting from the Corinthian church, there was this undercurrent, at the least, that they didn't like that Paul was, was speaking to them with authority, right? They were, they were curious why Paul got to decide these things and tell them. And so he reminds them, I'm an apostle. I was a special messenger chosen by Christ to share these things with you, so you need to listen. We're going to talk a lot more about this later in 1 Corinthians and definitely in 2 Corinthians about Paul's apostolic authority, so we're not going to spend a lot of time here. But notice he says, am I not an apostle, and have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Remember in Acts chapter 1, uh, one of the requirements for being an apostle of Christ was that you have seen the risen Christ, and we know that in Acts chapter 9, uh, Paul did have that experience where he saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, and so he says, I am an apostle. So I've seen the Lord, I've met the requirements. And then he says, are you not my work in the Lord? He turns it back around on them. Why are you questioning my authority when you are literally the, the certification, the authentication that I'm a real apostle and you are my work? Uh, it's kind of a tongue in cheek. He's going to bring up the idea that ministry is actual real work when he comes later on. Okay. He has become, uh, chapter four, he said that he was their father through the gospel. He brought the gospel to them. He says in verse 2, if, uh, if to others I'm not an apostle, okay, maybe some other people around the world can't say that I'm an apostle, but you, at least I am to you, you are the seal, the confirmation of my apostleship in the Lord. You are the proof that I actually am the one who brought you the gospel as a special messenger of Christ. Matthew Henry in his commentary says this, he says, this church at Corinth had as much reason to believe and as little reason to question his apostolic mission as any. They had as much reason, perhaps more than any other church, to pay him respect. And he says, this is aggravated ingratitude for these people to question Paul's authority. Paul was their apostle. And they say, I don't know if we should listen to you or not. <laughs> and he says, well, you should. I'm an apostle. And so he comes now, verse 3, he's got a series of arguments for why uh, what he says in verse 14, that the ones proclaiming the gospel should have compensation according to their work. And so the arguments in favor of this truth, okay? Number one, verses 3 to 7, is from natural order, from natural order. He says, my defense to those who examine me is this. Here's my defense. You have questions. Here is my response. And the first thing he notes in verse 4 is that everyone, every Christian has a right to food. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? We're all Christians. We have the liberty to eat food and to drink. That is a natural right that all of us have been given. So uh, now in verse chapter 8, we learn that we can't use those rights, even that, to, to cause others to stumble. So we need to be careful of what we're eating, whether it's the meat sacrificed idols or not. But when it comes down to it, all Christians are allowed to eat food. 
Okay? Verse 5, we also have a right to get married. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? said, we're all Christians. We all have the right to eat. We also all have the right to get married if we want. Notice, he says, a believing wife. Literally, it's, a, it's actually the word sister wife. The idea is a, a wife who is a sister in Christ, okay? We have the freedom to get married if we choose. We saw that back in chapter 7. Uh, remember, uh, chapter 7, verse 7, Paul says, I wish all men were even as I myself am, or he was single. But he says, however, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Getting married as a Christian is a matter of Christian liberty. You can choose to get married to the glory of God. You can choose to stay single for the glory of God. It's up to you. But he says, we all have the right to eat, we all have the right to get married, and notice he says, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. Apparently, many of the other apostles, uh, the Lord's brothers, James, Jude is probably who he's referring to at least, that these men were all married to uh, Christian ladies, and so he, he recognized that. We know that Peter was, Matthew 8 tells us that Peter had a mother-in-law, which implies that he was married, right? And so we, uh, we can see that as well. So Paul looks at the other apostles, the other, the other men who were gospel ministers at the time, and he says, look, we have the right to get married to a Christian. And then his third right that he mentions here in verses 6 and 7 is the right to compensation, okay? We all have the right to eat, we all have the right to get married, and we all have the right to get paid for our work. He says, verse 6, do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Now, what's interesting is why he mentions Barnabas here. The answer is, we don't know. Barnabas actually, as far as we know, didn't minister at Corinth for any significant period of time, or maybe at all, and uh, he's not mentioned in this letter a whole lot and those things. And so why? Well, apparently Barnabas was also known that he worked in addition to his ministry. And so he brings up, hey, Barnabas and I were working in addition to our ministry, and you're telling us that we can't stop doing that. Now, notice he says, we don't have a right to refrain from working. Now, it sounds like he just wants to stop working and lay around the house and, you know, kick his feet up and do nothing. Well, it's not what he means here. He's talking about in addition to the ministry that they're already doing in all the churches, right? So he's saying, you're saying we can't quit our second job because we have to keep that, okay? And how do I know that's what he's talking about here? Well, in verse 7, he gives three examples, okay? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat the fruit of it? Who tends a flock and doesn't use the milk of the flock? <coughs> Excuse me. I love how he says, who at any time, uh, that is the, the old-fashioned version of who like ever would do this, okay? That's what Paul is saying. Who has ever joined the military and paid for it, okay? Soldiers don't show up and say, hi, how much does it cost to join the military? Oh, it's going to cost this much, and you got to pay for your room and board, and, and your tra- boot camp is a lot. Oh, here you go. And nobody does that, right? You, they have to recruit you. That's the idea, right? You join the military because they give you wages, okay? And then he says, who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat the fruit of it? Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat what comes from the vineyard? No, nobody plants a garden or a vineyard or, or an orchard and doesn't eat the fruit of it somehow or another. Who tends a flock and doesn't use the milk of the flock? The the whole point of doing this kind of work is so that you get some benefit from it. You get compensation from it. It's interesting, the three examples he chooses, a soldier is someone who's paid wages, right? Probably just some kind of cash money, right? 
the, the one who plants a vineyard is probably the owner of the vineyard, someone who, you know, what is, is this our small business owner, right? The one who kind of works for himself there. And then the one who tends a flock, that's someone who is an employee of someone else, maybe even a slave of someone else. So he might not even be getting extra wages, but he at least gets to use the milk of the flock, right? He gets fed, if nothing else. And so Paul is saying here very clearly that that natural order just tells us that people who work deserve to get compensated for their efforts, okay? Now, there's two interpretations for this little section here, verses 3 to 7, that we just talked about. The first interpretation is what Paul is saying is, do we not have a right to eat and drink at your expense, at at the expense of the church? Do we not have a right to bring our wives with us when we visit you and for you to cover the costs of putting them up? Do we not have the right to quit our jobs so that we can spend all of our time with you and you pay our expenses? That's one interpretation. Actually, that's the interpretation that most commentaries go with. There's a couple reasons why I don't think that's the primary meaning here, okay? The first one is that it doesn't actually say that, okay? It doesn't say that in the text. Nowhere in these verses does he talk about at the church's expense, at the expense of the Corinth church, okay? Also, notice in verse 5, he says, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? Now, the idea of take along, it can mean, it actually often means in the Gospels to travel with, okay? Someone who is accompanying someone else. So we could understand this to say, Paul saying, hey, I'm going to bring along this wife that I have, and you're going to put us both up while we're ministering to you. That's what a lot of commentaries say. However, it's interesting that he says a believing wife. Why? Because he has just said that in chapter 7, that you are free to marry as long as it's who? to a believer, only in the Lord. So what I think he's saying, as I've said so far, is that he's saying we are all Christians and we all have the right to eat. We all have the right to get married as long as it's to a believer. And therefore, when he comes to verses six and seven, we all have the right to get paid for whatever work we're doing, okay? And so either way, either interpretation you take, the idea here is clear that the normal rule of life is that workers should get compensated for their work. Okay, that is a normal thing. And so even as you think about your own business or, or you know, your grandkids and encouraging them to go to school or get jobs or trades or whatever, think about that, that, that it is a good biblical right thing that you work and you get some reasonable compensation for that. Okay? Now, his second argument, apart from natural order, is from the Old Testament law. <laughs> I love how he starts verse 8. I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? I'm not making this up in my own head, okay? This isn't something I just came up with, and I, Paul, am the only person that's ever thought this way, okay? And so he says, doesn't the law also say these things? Verse 9, it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God's not concerned about oxen, is he? He says it's written in the law of Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4 says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. Well, what does that mean? You know, the idea is while the ox is threshing the grain and getting, getting the grain out from the husks, he would eat some of it as he goes along. And the Old Testament law says that's good. You shouldn't muzzle and keep the ox from eating while he's working for a couple reasons. One, that's just cruel to make him work without feeding him. And two, it's bad for the ox. If you keep making him work without feeding him properly, it's going to be bad for him and for you. And so the idea is don't, don't keep someone from enjoying a little bit of the compensation for the work they're doing, okay? But then I love he says, God's not concerned about oxen, is he? The point isn't the ox. 
And so the question is, well, does God not care about animals? No, he does care about animals. Proverbs 12.10 says that the righteous man has regard for the life of his animal. God does care how you use the creation that he's given you. He does care how you treat the animals that God has given you to, to take care of. But Paul's point is, the point of this whole thing about you know, muzzling the ox while he's threshing, the point isn't about the ox. It's a bigger point. Okay? The point is that the person who's working should be able to have some compensation for it. You see that in verse 10. He explains, is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it's written, the plowman ought to plow in hope, the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. The one who's putting all the effort in should get the first dibs at the, the reward. And then 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, if we were still confused about what he's saying here, 1 Timothy 5, 18 makes it very clear that he's talking about paying those who are worthy of their wages. The scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Just an interesting application there that God is concerned about the normal affairs of our everyday life. He cares about how we treat our ox, or if you don't have an ox, your animals. But he also cares that the people that are working hard get their reasonable wage. They get compensation for their work. Okay, so he says, first, I can argue from natural order. Everybody knows you can eat, you can get married, and you should get paid for your work. Also, the Old Testament law says that explicitly, that the laborer is worthy of their wages. The ox shouldn't be muzzled while they're threshing. Third argument is from the lesser to the greater. Now, there, there's actually two arguments here, but they're kinda, they go together. So verse 11, he says, If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If we sowed spiritual things, is it too much? Or, or literally, is it a great thing? <laughs> modern vernacular, is it really that big of a deal if we get material things from you if we have given you spiritual things? You see that? And, and the implication is clear. Spiritual things, spiritual value is greater than material value. In Romans chapter 15, uh, verses 26 and 27, Paul's talking about the churches in Macedonia and Achaia. They're, they're Gentile churches, and they send money back to the church in Jerusalem which is primarily a Jewish church, right? And they send money back to them, and he says, yes, they were pleased to do so. And he says, if the Gentiles, the ones sending the money, have shared in their spiritual things, the gospel that came out of the Jerusalem church, of course, then they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. He says, spiritual value is so much greater than material value. If one is pouring their life into you for the sake of spiritual matters, reaping a little bit of material benefit is, is a no-brainer. That is no big deal. And then the second argument from the lesser to the greater is in verse 12. He says, if others share the right over you, do we not more? So apparently this whole thing is, is for naught. Apparently the Corinthians had already been supporting some ministers. They just didn't want to support Paul. He says, if others share this right over you, don't we more? Who are these other ministers? Well, we've talked about Apollos, right, being a minister there. Maybe some of the other apostles. He mentioned the other apostles and Peter and, and those, right? Maybe just some other unnamed ministers that we'll, we won't know about until we get to heaven. I don't know. But it's interesting that he says these other men have this, this right over you and apparently have been met, uh, had that right met, and yet you're just not wanting to support me. And that's interesting, right? Uh, the Bible Knowledge Commentary says, if the church supported them, talking about Peter and Apollos and others, their founding father Paul was surely no less deserving. So what's the, the argument from the, ref, the lesser to the greater there? Hey, the ministry you have now, you're taking care of. I'm 
the one who founded the church, you should at least be willing to pay me a little bit, right? To, to cover some cost, some, some expense. But look at verse 12. This is really where Paul's going. Nevertheless, we did not use this right. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, which we'll get there later this year or later next year, <clears throat> he says, in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I didn't become a burden to you? So the only way I treated you different than any of the other churches I've served with is that I didn't actually make you pay my expenses. And he says, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. I am, it is perfectly okay with me. I am perfectly willing to give everything I have and give all of myself for the sake of your souls. I don't need your money. But you should know that this is a reasonable thing for Christian ministers to ask. We endure all things, verse 12, we endure all things so that we will not cause a hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Remember back in chapter 8, do not let this liberty of yours become a stumbling block. The Christian liberty that Paul has to say, hey, you actually should pay your ministers. He will not use it if it means any hindrance to the gospel of Christ. And then he comes to his fourth argument, and really this is the only one he needed, and it's from the Lord. <laughs> it's from Jesus himself. Verse 13, Paul says, Christian ministers are worth compensating because don't you know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend to the altar have their share from the altar? Now, this is clear that those who literally do the work of the temple eat the food of the temple and those who attend to the altar have their share from the altar. Now, this is very clearly true from the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 7, uh, verses 31 to 38, talks about how uh, the offerings that were brought, the sacrifices that were brought, they were given to Aaron and his sons. That's the priests, okay? Numbers chapter 18, verses 30 and 31, says the same thing about not just the priests, but also to the Levites, okay? And it says in verse 31, your compensation in return for your service, okay? And then Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 1 is the clearest one of all. It says, the Levitical priests, the whole tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. You remember that, that the, the tribe of Levi didn't get any land inheritance. They didn't get a territory. Why? Because they were scattered in all the cities across Israel, and they were compensated by the sacrifices that were brought to the places of worship. And so Deuteronomy 18.1, the whole tribe of Levi shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's offerings by fire and his portion. That is how they're to make a living, is they receive a portion of the sacrifices that were brought. And then, here is the, the punch, right? Verse 14, so also, in the same way that God in the Old Testament said the Levitical priests and the Levites got to eat off of the altar and the sacrifices, so also the Lord directed that those who proclaim the gospel get their living from the gospel. So the question is, did Jesus say this? And the answer is, he did. Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus sends out the 12 disciples to go preach, he sends them out to go preach and heal the sick and raise the dead and cleanse the lepers. And then he says, don't acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts. Because Matthew 10, 10, the worker is worthy of his support. He intentionally told his disciples when they went out preaching to not plan to take money with them and to support themselves. Why? Because they should be supported by those who are being served. He does the same thing again in Luke chapter 10 when he sends out the 70 preachers. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them out in pairs ahead of him. And then Luke chapter 10, verse 4, carry no money belt or bag or shoes. And then in verse 7, stay in the house eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. 
So Paul comes around. All of these arguments I had for why you should be paying your Christian ministers comes back to, actually, I didn't need any of those arguments because Jesus said that. You should just listen to Jesus. And so the, the New American Commentary says, Paul concludes his argument with the most compelling reason of all, the practice derives from Jesus himself. Jesus says Christian ministers are worth compensating. So what application do we have for us? Well, clearly, it is the biblical mandate for believers to materially support their ministers. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 5 when it's talking about the elders of a church, those who, who rule well and those who work hard at preaching and teaching should be afforded the honor, the wages that are appropriate. So the application for you and me is, are we giving faithfully to the Christian ministers in our lives through the local church here at Countryside and those things? We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 that our giving to the church should be consistent. It talks about how they do it every week at that church. Maybe you do it every week. Maybe you give every month or however that works. It should be something that's intentional, not just, oh yeah, I forgot. I'll do it again sometime. Not haphazard, but we should be giving faithfully. And now I want you all to know that Steve accidentally assigned this chapter to be preached by the only person in the room who's paid by this church. <laughs> and it is not lost on me how awkward this is. Steve has tested me to see if I will say what the scripture says. But here we are. We are to give faithfully, and I say we because it is also my job as a Christian member of the church to also be giving to the ministry of the church. We all give faithfully to the church so that our ministers, our elders, our paid pastors can be supported. I also want to bring up another application that we might not think about as easily, and that is Paul wasn't their primary pastor. Who was Paul to them? He was a, he was a missionary, <laughs> Are we supporting our missionaries well? Not only the ministry here at this church, but uh, the ministry of the gospel around the world and the missionaries we have, have relationships with. Third John, chapter, uh, Third John verses 5 to 8 is very clear that it is good for us to support those who are doing ministry and that we care for them along the way. And so uh, I think most of you know this, but we've talked about this before. Uh, missionaries uh, in our modern context are usually supported two ways. One, they usually get a good chunk of their support, monthly support from churches, churches like ours and others that send money to them so that they can pay their expenses. The second way that a lot of missionaries pay their expenses is from individual supporters, individual donors. And so there is a possibility for you to both give to the church, but also to give to other missionaries or other organizations that are doing gospel ministry around the world. And Paul is very clear here in, in chapter 9 that this is a good and biblical and right thing. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, says this. And Matthew Henry is not known for being a uh, softy. He's a little bit blunt, Okay. It is the people's duty to maintain their minister by Christ's appointment. Those who preach the gospel have a right to live by it, and those who attend on their ministry and yet take no thought about their subsistence fail very much in their duty to Christ and respect owing to them. Uh, just as a personal side note, uh, our church actually takes care of us very well, okay? But there are a lot of churches out there that I know of that either intentionally do not pay their pastors and ministers or intentionally underpay them because it's a good thing for your spiritual sanctification to have to deal with contentedness without any money. And let me tell you, those kinds of churches get what they pay for. 
They have a lot of struggle and issue getting men who are there who want to serve in that, that context because they can go to a very similar context and their wives don't have to worry quite so much, okay? So whether it's in this church or another church, just have that on your mind that the Lord wants us to be careful to take care of those who are working hard at preaching and teaching and ministering the gospel to us. This, the spiritual value is always worth more than whatever money we need to give up to get that, okay? Now, that brings us to the second section of the chapter because that was just the example. That's actually not the point. And so we need to be careful to make sure that we're thinking well about this. The second point uh, Paul is making here in chapter 9 is that Christian liberty is worth sacrificing for the gospel. He says, okay, here's my Christian liberty. I'm a minister of the gospel. I could demand that you pay my expenses while I am serving you. But, verse 15, and this is the key, verse 15, I have used none of these things. I haven't demanded that. I haven't required that of you. I haven't used any of these things, and I'm not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. I'm not, I'm not writing this to guilt trip you into paying my next trip, okay? He says, I'm making a point here. Well, what's the point? The point is that Christian liberty is always worth sacrificing when it comes to the sake of the gospel. And we see that for a couple reasons. First reason is in verses 15 to 18. How does Paul know that it's going to be worth giving up his Christian liberty for the sake of the gospel? Well, the first answer is because he's compelled to preach anyway. He's got to preach. It's not a choice. The Christian liberty to get paid or not get paid, that's a choice. Preaching the gospel, not a choice. We are compelled as Christians to preach the gospel. Verse 15, it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. Uh, I've used none of these things. Is it true that Paul really didn't use uh, the expenses by these churches? It is true. In Acts chapter 18, when we talk about Corinth, this church that he's writing to, remember this is the one where it says he became a tent maker and he was working with Aquila and Priscilla. When he talks to Acts, uh, in Acts chapter 20 to the church at Ephesus, he told them that he didn't burden them and his hands ministered to his own needs. In 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, he makes clear that when he went to Thessalonica that he worked night and day so that he wasn't a burden to the church, but rather that he could spend uh, his expenses, cover his own expenses and spend his time sharing the gospel with them. And so it is true. He didn't use these things, and he's not trying to change, uh, change the, the scenario. He says, I'm not writing this so that you're going to change. I'm writing this to make a point that it's worth giving up. He says, I would rather die than for someone to make my boast an empty one. Well, what is his boast? His boast is that the gospel is worth preaching whether you're paid or not. The gospel is worth it. Paul refused to let these, these false teachers that he mentions in 2 Corinthians 11 that were making a mockery of the gospel by trying to sell it. He says, I refuse to let them ruin the reputation of the gospel. The gospel is simply worth too much. The gospel is worth sharing and proclaiming the good news no matter whether I make a penny off of it ever in my life or not. And I won't have anyone take that away from me. Verse 16, this is his boast. If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I'm under compulsion. Uh, you think I'm preaching the gospel because I'm some good guy. I'm not. I have nothing to be proud of. I am preaching the gospel because, he says, I'm under compulsion. The necessity of pressure is laid on me, he says. I cannot choose to not do this. You remember in Acts chapter 9, when Paul is converted on the road to Damascus and then he's led into the city and, and God comes to the prophet Ananias and says, hey, you need to go talk to, to this man Saul. And Ananias says, I don't think so. I've heard of him. Paul says, or God says, no, 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 you need to go. He is a chosen instrument of mine. 
(laughs) He's going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Do you think Paul heard that message and thought, well, God's given me a choice here? He did not. Paul is under compulsion to preach the gospel. Romans chapter 1, he says, I'm under obligation to Greeks and to barbarians. He says, woe is me, a curse on me. I'm pronouncing pain and distress on myself if I don't preach the gospel. And the question for you and me is, do we have that same compulsion? And the answer is, if you are a Christian, yes. You are under the same compulsion to share the gospel like Paul is. One of the commentaries says, not all are called to a ministry like Paul's, but none is exempt from the requirement of letting the grace of God be known. Matthew 28, we go and we make disciples of all the nations, teaching them and baptizing them. That is the idea. We are all witnesses of the gospel. We we are all compelled to preach, whether we get paid for it or, or whether we give it away for free. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 17, he moves on. If I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. I I think this is interesting. The way that I take this is he says, if I'm doing this just because I want to, if I signed up to preach the gospel because I was, you know, looking for a job, knocked on the door, hey, excuse me, church, you know, y'all hiring for anything? And they're like, well, we're looking for a pastor. And he's like, I I could probably be a pastor. Yeah, you know, how hard could it be, right? You know, I'll, I'll be a preacher of the gospel. Yeah, sign me up. Okay, well, then what's his reward? What's the pay that comes from that? He says, you don't understand. I'm not doing this because I was looking for a job. I'm doing this because, what does he say? It's against my will. Uh, I mean, you know, don't think that he's angry about it, but, but he didn't get a choice, right? He was saved by the power of God and given this commission to be an apostle. He says, this is against my will. I have had a stewardship entrusted to me. I don't get to choose to turn that away. I'm not just doing this for a job. I'm doing this because it's the gospel and what I, it's what I have to do. And then in verse 18, what then is my reward? Oh, okay, if, I, if I'm going to turn down all the material things, if I'm going to turn down all the payment, what's the reward? The reward is that when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. What's the reward? So what's the reward to you and me? We get to preach the gospel for free to us and to them. Can you imagine if there was a grocery store, let's use H-E-B because we love Texas, and they opened their doors of a new store and they said, by the way, the unique thing about this store is that everything is free. You come in, you can take as much as you want, you can take whatever you need for your family, take as much as you need for your friends, take it, give it away, we don't care. No one's ever going to pay. How many of you would go to that grocery store? How many of you would get everything you need, not just for you, but everyone in your neighborhood, everyone in your family, everyone that you know, and give it away for free? The gospel is free. Romans 6.23 says that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You and I can share the gospel and not charge people for it. That's a good thing. And can I challenge you and I that sometimes we pretend like we're inconveniencing people by giving them for free the only thing they really need? We've got to be careful. We've got to think better. The the, the gospel, we can offer it without charge. How are you doing evangelizing in your family, in your coworkers, in in your neighbors? How are you doing praying for opportunities for the gospel to go to those people? You don't have to charge them. You can just give it away for free whenever you want to. The gospel is free of charge. So, How does Paul know that it's worth giving up his Christian liberty for the sake of the gospel? 
Because we have to preach. We have to give the gospel away for free no matter what. That's the point. His second reason that he knows this is true, he knows it's going to be worth it, is because this gives us more opportunity to share the gospel. Verse 19, though I'm free from all men, I've made myself a slave to all that I might win more. I love the idea of winning here. He talks about uh, that I might win more. It's an investment term. You buy $10 worth of stock, the stock goes up. Next week you cash out, you make $11, and you have a little bit extra from that investment. You gained, you profited from that investment. That's the idea here. The investment is worth it. You pour the gospel into other people, and God will use it for his glory and for our good and to save many, many people. I am doing this. I'm giving up my liberty. I'm cashing my things out to, to, to pour into this investment so that I might gain more, so that I might win more. The investment is worth the gain. And then he highlights three different groups here. Uh, verse 20, he says, to the Jews, to the Jews I became as a Jew. Okay, now he's already a Jew. He's Paul. But he became as a Jew. He lived like them. He did what they would normally do. Why? So that I might win those who are under the law. The expositor's commentary says, Paul didn't feel personally obligated to keep the Jewish laws and traditions. Why? Because he understands the new covenant, that he's free in Christ. He didn't have to keep the old laws. But he occasionally agreed to honor them. In so doing, he would advance the cause of Christ. Paul was perfectly willing to say, oh, okay, you want to do this custom and this ritual or whatever, not for saving, not for justification or anything like that, but that's how you do things? Okay, I'll do that with you. Why? So you can share the gospel with them. Even to the point of, think about this. In Acts chapter 16, Paul has Timothy, do you remember this? Get circumcised so that he would have no issue interacting with the Jewish believers. That's a big deal, okay? That's a big decision in your life to say, I'm doing this for the sake of the gospel. I will do whatever it takes. That's what it takes? Done. Now, What's interesting is in Galatians, he says that Titus didn't get circumcised. Why? Because they were trying to say that that's how you got saved, is you had to keep the Old Testament law. And Paul says, nope, not going there. We're actually going to talk more about that in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. Okay? He says, I'm not going to confuse the matter here, but if this is just a, this is a little thing, this is an offense that might be caused, get rid of that. It's not worth it. The gospel is worth more than that. Same thing in Acts chapter 21. Paul goes and he does a ritual purification with men in Jerusalem at the encouragement of the Jerusalem elders so that they would know that he wasn't trying to just blow up the whole Old Testament and say it didn't matter anymore. Said, no, 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 that's not true. I want to share the gospel with them. I'm perfectly willing to do this with them. Matthew Henry, though he looked on the ceremonial law as a yoke taken off by Christ, Yet in many instances, he submitted to it so that he might work upon the Jews and win them over to Christ. Verse 21, he says he does the same thing with the Gentiles, to those who are without law, those who are not under the law. But he clarifies, he doesn't want you to think, oh, I don't have to be without, I don't have to have the law. I can do whatever I want. We can, we can, oh man, you know, there's unbelievers, you know, getting drunk at the bars. Let's go out to the bars, get drunk with them so we can share the gospel with them. And he's like, no, 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 you don't understand. So he clarifies, not being without the law of God, you are still under the law of God and you're under the law of Christ. You have to live the way that the scripture teaches you to live, but you don't have to hold Gentiles to the Jewish customs. Why? Because they're Gentiles. So when you're with Gentiles, function as Gentiles. And then in verse 22, he says he does this with the weaker brother. Remember in chapter 8, we were talking about the one whose conscience is weak. They haven't clarified in their mind and heart how this Christian liberty works out yet. So they're struggling with these things. 
Paul says, to the weak, I became weak so that I might win the weak. Hey, if you struggle with the meat and eating and, and all that stuff, forget about it. Let's not worry about the meat. Let's put the meat away. We just need to talk about the gospel. Uh, you you want to eat meat? All right, let's eat meat. Let's talk. You want to not eat meat? Let's not eat meat. Let's talk. Either way, that is not the issue. We are putting those things aside. To the weak, I became weak. I am perfectly willing to give up my liberty. Was Paul okay to eat the meat? Yeah, he did happily eating the meat. But did he need to if this person was going to be bothered? Absolutely not. Next week, we're going to talk some, about some more examples of that as well, and even here in a minute. In 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says that we are to help the weak and be patient with everyone. Just a reminder that in some situations, you and I are the stronger brother. We, we are clear in our conscience of how we should live. In some situations, we might be the weaker brother, and we can't do the wrong thing in either way. If we're the stronger brother, we need to give up our liberty so that we can encourage others to be more like Christ. If we're the weaker brother and our conscience might be bothered by something, we can't impose our conscience on the stronger brother who is okay to honor the Lord in a different way. We need to be careful how we do that. Romans chapter 14, verse 1, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment. Romans 15, 2, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, for his edification. Warren Wearsby in this commentary, notice verse 22, he says, I have become all things to all men so that by all means I might save some. Warren Wearsby says, he didn't parade his liberty before the Jews, nor did he impose the law on the Gentiles. Matthew Henry says, he wouldn't sin against God, but he would very cheerfully and readily deny himself. That's the idea. Are you willing to give up your own personal preferences for the sake of sharing the gospel and encouraging other Christians to be more and more like Christ? Verse 23, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. Everything of my life, every decision I make, I'm going to decide not what do I want to do, not what does sound fun today, not, not what sounds relaxing. I'm going to say, what can I do to proclaim the gospel and glorify God right now? And that's what I'm going to do. And then he says, I love this, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Now, it almost sounds like he's saying if he lives his life a certain way that he'll get to be saved. That's not what he's saying. Notice he says a fellow partaker of it. Not so I can be a partaker of it, so that other people can be a partaker of it. I don't want to be saved by the gospel and be there all by myself. I want to be a fellow partaker. I want lots of people to understand the gospel and be saved. And I'll do anything I have to do to make sure that they get that chance. So for you and me, we've talked about this some. We'll talk about it more in the next couple of weeks. But, but there's lots of things in our lives that we get real uptight about. Are we willing to give those things up? You know, maybe an easy example with the meat sacrificed idols thing. Maybe you have a coworker and you've been looking for a way to share the gospel with that person. And they say, hey, you know, let's go out to lunch after this, we finish this project meeting. Yeah, that's great. Let's do it. And you find out on the way there that they're a vegan. <sighs> What's the answer? Congratulations. You're a vegan for the next two hours, right? Yeah. Where do you normally go? Let's go. Let's eat. And, and you try new things. And why? Because it's worth it for the sake of the gospel, right? What is it? Actually, this is a great example. Uh, you remember when the missionary, Brooks Buser, came back in August? And remember how he says when they went to that tribe, they got there, and the tribe was asking about him and his wife, and they said, oh, yeah, you're not really married. I know you think you're married, but you're not really married. Remember what they did? 
They got married in the village. Why? Because that's not worth fighting about. Oh, you think we need to get married? All right, let's get married. And bam, now they have an opportunity for the gospel. They translate the scripture into the, the language. What an example, right? I have a friend who, who back in the middle of COVID was supposed to go on a missions trip. And at that time, you could not get on an airplane without being vaccinated. And he had a choice to make. His choice, get vaccinated. I think his words were, I don't know, probably not. I think that was his, his phrasing. You know what he did? He wanted to go on the mission trip. He wanted to go and share the gospel with them. And so for him, it wasn't a big deal. I'm not saying that that's the decision everyone should make. That's the point of Christian liberty and, and the issues of conscience. But I'm saying that that should be the priority in our mind is I want to do whatever it takes to share the gospel that doesn't compromise other things. Okay? Uh, maybe, you know, it's you invite your neighbor over to watch the game so you can interact and, and, and you know, share the gospel with him. And he brings over his six-pack with him because he's watching the game. And you're like, we don't do that in this house. Or maybe you do. I don't know. That's up to you to, to make that decision. But be careful that you're not making decisions for your own preferences and not for the sake of the gospel. Okay? Last, last point. Here we go. We've got to finish. I'm sorry. One more reason why Paul knows that it's going to be worth giving up his Christian liberty for the sake of the gospel. You know how? You know how he knows that it's worth giving up his liberty for the sake of the gospel? Because it's worth giving up everything for the sake of the gospel. Christian liberty is just on the list, okay? Discipline for the sake of the gospel. Paul says no matter what it is, we need to be disciplined for the sake of the gospel. Verse 24, he's going to use this illustration of, of running a race, professional athletes. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? What was he saying? He's saying that 10 guys are going to line up and they're going to run this race. You know how many of those guys are going to win the prize? Only one. You have a 90% chance of spending your whole year training for this and losing. However, in the Christian life, all of us win as long as you run the right race. You should actually run like you're trying to win. Do you have any motivation, any compulsion to run the race? Run in such a way that you may obtain the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. So the question for you and me is, is your Christian life kind of limping along, or are you really running to win? Are you working hard at studying the word and understanding it and sharing the gospel and praying for other people? Are you running to win? This is, this is it. This is the race. Verse 25, he says, everyone who competes in the games exercises control in all things, in everything. Warren Wearsby says, discipline means giving up good and better for the best. The athlete says no to a lot of good things so that he can win the race. So are you and I exercising self-control and self-discipline in every area of our life so that we can honor Christ? He says, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. He says, these professional athletes, they spend every minute of their time training for something, and what's the best they're going to get? Maybe a new contract at the end of the year, right? Matthew Henry, this, this is a long quote, but I want to read it. This is really helpful. This is convicting to me. Matthew Henry says this, Those who conquered in these games, the Isthmian games that he's talking about, Paul's referring to, those who conquered in these games were crowned only with a withering leaves of olive, bays, or laurel. But Christians have an incorruptible crown in view, a crown of glory that never fadeth away, an inheritance incorruptible reserved in heaven for them. And would they yet suffer themselves to be outdone by these racers or wrestlers? 
Can they use abstinence in diet, exert themselves in racing, expose their bodies to so much hardship, who have no more in view than the trifling huzzas of a giddy multitude or a crown of leaves? And shall not Christians who hope for the approbation of the sovereign judge and a crown of glory from his hands stretch forward in the heavenly race and exert themselves in beating down their fleshly inclinations and the strongholds of sin? See what he's saying? You are Christians and you're getting outdone by a bunch of pagan professional athletes because they want a trophy and a little bit of money. What is wrong with you? Why are Christians not the single most hardworking, disciplined, diligent people in the world for the sake of the gospel? That's what we have to be. We can't let people running after the things of the world be more passionate and caring more and more sacrificial for those things than we are for the gospel. It can't happen. And so, verse 26, Paul says, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. What he says is, he says, I'm not going for a training jog, okay? I'm not going on an unmarked course. I'm not just going, running around my neighborhood, seeing how long it takes. I'm not shadow boxing. What does he say? This is the real deal. You and I, we're not practicing for some other Christian life. This is the Christian life. This is the race we're in. We're in it right now. We're not, we're not pretending. We're not training anymore. This is it. How are you running? Well, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. I, literally, I bruise my body and make it my slave. What does he say? I'm not, my body is not my master. It is my slave. I will use my body however is best for the sake of the gospel so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Self-discipline in the Christian life is a necessary mark that you are actually a Christian. If you have no self-control, Galatians 5, that's a fruit of the Spirit. Self-discipline, self-control, not just in Christian liberty and these things we're talking about, in everything. Are you willing to be disciplined and proving by your discipline running, your discipline life, that you are not disqualified, that you are actually running the right race. Matthew Henry says, a holy fear of ourselves is the best security against apostasy. You should be concerned that you are disciplining yourself for the sake of the gospel. The expositor's commentary wraps it up this way. Even though we may have certain rights, and we do, we have rights, we are free in Christ, we are not obligated to exercise those rights at every possible opportunity. In fact, there may be times when we specifically refrain from doing so in order that the cause of Christ may be advanced. There are lots of things that you are free in Christ to do. There's a lot of things you are free in Christ to do. But none of those things, not a single one, will ever be worth you choosing that thing if it means you hinder the progress of the gospel in your life, in the life of an unbeliever who needs to hear the gospel, or in the life of a weaker brother who needs your encouragement to be more like Christ. It's never going to be worth it, but it will always be worth giving up your choice and your Christian liberty and sacrificing that for the sake of the gospel in your life and other people's, okay? 1 Corinthians 9. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Pray that this would be helpful to us, that we would be reminded that the gospel matters more than anything, that we would love you, that we would love it, and that we would love the people around us enough to share the gospel with them clearly, and that you would use it for your glory and our good. We pray all this in your name. Amen.